Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you all. And uh, a few announcements as we get going. Just what a wonderful time to worship our awesome God. Thanks to the team who puts in all the effort with sound and instruments and just seeking the Lord with those songs. And what a, what a joy to enter in together and to have fellowship. And that the body would be like that. The church would be like all the parts blended together to, in one song of unison to the Lord to glorify him. Uh, a couple of events to announce. There's a women's event coming up. Uh, the actual event's on 19 November, but it's in the bag is what it's called. And so there's donations to be brought for women's products. If you just, in the foyer, there's a little flyer about it. So it's just donations accepted, and then it'll be filled on that day. So talk to Laura if you have any questions. Uh, also, there's a Lamington Drive that's being arranged. We have a small team that's heading out to Cambodia in Jan. So uh, it's Joan, Kaz, and Peter. And this is a way to help offset some of the cost of travel and also uh, to be able to provide money to buy supplies, medical, uh, you know, like glasses and medicines and things like that. So that's a way that we can all cooperate and uh, contribute, so that's being made. They're actually, we make them in-house, and you uh, can talk to Kaz for more details, but that also is out in the foyer, and that's 3 December. Finally, if you have not been baptized and want to be, you can talk to me or Phil as we have a baptism coming up soon. Okay, well, let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are awesome, that you are mighty to save, that you are you are wisdom for us, that you give us everything that pertains to life and godliness, that uh, you, have made our, you have opened our eyes to see our need for you. And thank you, Lord, for, for the times when we are overwhelmed because it forces us to reckon with our limited abilities and our finiteness and our fears and cares and worries and just how great you are, that you are able to sustain us and help us and guide us every step of the way. And I pray we would Embrace that, Lord, and, and be changed, knowing who you are, knowing what you've promised, and knowing that you are good, that your love endures, that you're with us today and always, and that we need not fear because you are with us and have given us exceedingly precious promises, even your own son, so we could be redeemed. And just thank you for this body, Lord. Thank you for the church and the work that you're doing in each one of our hearts, and I pray you'd continue to quicken us and use us so that you would be glorified and we would be edified in following you. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 25 is where we'll be, if you'll turn there. Genesis 25. Anyone here fond of to-do lists? Like, oh, I love those to-do lists. You can look at them like a chore, something you want to avoid. Like, okay, I actually have to make a list because I'm not doing it. Or, but it's really an opportunity to get something done. And there's a sense of satisfaction, even with those jobs that nobody wants or that you've maybe been putting off, and it's that list that's going to remind you and prompt you to take action. Having them finished is you look back and go, I'm glad that's done. And you're happy with the result or maybe not so happy with the result, and so you need to do it more often. I like what King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, one and two. He wrote, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. Uh, 
so often I can be focused on the planting and the picking, but not at, of all the process in the middle. And it's so important that we're, we don't just focus on the end result and just tolerating the middle bits to get to the end result, but that we would recognize that God has a purpose for every season, the growing season, the planting season, the harvesting season, that the winter, the summer, there's a purpose in those things. And you may have a preference of one season to another based upon the weather or what you prefer or what you're used to, but know that God has his purposes that are greater than our preferences. And there's contentment to be found in every season. Like when you're at work and you're looking forward to a holiday or it's been rough and you're like, I'm looking forward to a break. Know that when you feel like you need a break, when you feel like you just need to get away from everything, know that there is a refuge in God right then before you go somewhere. Because I find that it's on the trip where I am like not at rest. I'm like on edge because there's all these things to do and things to coordinate and I'm out of the routine. Knowing that God's good, he has purposes in every season of life, he, he ordains and allows, that brings us comfort. Like we don't have the answers to all the problems or difficulties, but in knowing God, we know enough because he is our life. He is our wisdom and our hope. So faith in Christ, it's so practical. It's not just for our salvation, but day-to-day -day living in guiding and directing us and comforting and helping us. And every day, it's a new season of opportunity to make God central in our life, to say, I'm going to seek the Lord and I'm going to bring him into this situation. I'm going to seek him before just making a snap decision or allowing these feelings to overwhelm me, but to look to him to, for guidance and strength, to thank him for his provision, to make our requests known to him, to seek him in the struggle and also to appreciate and treasure every person that God brings your way, whether or not you planned on meeting them or spending time with them. Like God has people that he's ordained for you to cross paths that were not in your diary, that you would speak with them, that you would show God's love to them. I want to become a person who delights in a tiring, long journey more than just it being over, knowing that God's with me every step of the way that he has ordained this, he is going to be with me, he won't leave or forsake me, that he's loving and leading me, and he loves and will lead you too. Now today's uh, passage, it, it marks the end of the life of Abraham on earth, the birth of his grandsons, Esau and Jacob, saying that it's a circle of life, it's a bit of a misnomer because uh, there's much more to life than just being born and reproducing and dying. Like God is not in that circle. But God, we know he, he's the one who brings life. He takes, he gives away. He has good purposes and plans we need to take into account. Like you guys have seen the water cycle. You know, like it's the water is evaporating. It, it falls in rain, runoff. Where's God in that? Well, God does the whole thing. It's out of his wisdom that that occurs. So let's include God in, in everything. And those cycles that seem so natural, like even our breathing. God, he's in control. He knows what he's doing. Genesis 25, starting in verse 1. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. 
And she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. After Sarah's passing, Abraham lived for another 37 years. He took a wife named Keturah. In 1 Chronicles 1.32, it refers to her as a concubine. And the ability that God gave Abraham to sire Isaac, we see continued after his birth. He had six additional sons. God told Abraham that he would make of him a a great nation, um, the father of many nations. And we see many distinct peoples represented here, like Sheba, Dedan, and Midian. But Abraham gave all that he had, the inheritance and the blessing, to Isaac, the son that God had promised to give him. It says he gave, them, he gave gifts to all his sons, but he sent them away eastward. So while he was living, he, he said, you guys you need to move on, gave them gifts. He didn't want them competing for the land that God had promised to give Abraham and his descendant, Isaac. And it was a wise move, really, for him to take some decisive action before his death. It wasn't like he pawned it off on Isaac or Keturah to sort out when he, after he passed and went the way of the earth. He had it arranged himself. And so he organized it. He sent them away. He loved them all, Ishmael included. But he, this was a step of faith. And knowing that God had called Isaac to be the son of promise, that in Isaac his seed would be called. And this wisdom that Abraham shows, it reminds me of Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. It says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So God had revealed his will. He had revealed it that his line would pass through Isaac and not through the others. And so he took action according to God's revealed will, trusting that he would supply their needs and Isaac's needs too. Continuing in verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt in Beer Lahai Roy. Abraham reached a good old age of 175. His passing was peaceful. There's no sense of uh, regrets in the life that God gave him. It's like his days were finished. It was a good life. It was a, a life that God had given him. And I think of life itself. It's such a wonderful gift of God. We should treasure it, and we shouldn't allow the trials and pains and unknowns or difficulties of this like life take the shine off of how good life is. I mean, we like life. We'd like to live it on our own terms. That's the issue that we have with life sometimes. It's, it's, not, what, it's not the one we want. 
People are pleased to live on their own terms, and when they face illness or incurable conditions, reckoning with mortality, that pushes us, it propels us to either demonstrate faith in God and seeking Him, or to reject Him, or go our own way, or, or cope without God. God made us to live forever, but not in a body of sin. That's why God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden after they sinned and ate of the forbidden fruit, because he didn't want man to eat of the, forbidden, to eat of the tree of life and live forever in his corrupted state. And so he drove the man out because he knew he would make a way of salvation and redemption through his own son, the son of God, Jesus Christ. So Abraham, a good old age, departed his earthly body. His soul was gathered to those, with those who feared God in the presence of the Lord, a place of comfort, rest, and peace. It's like he was gathered. He wasn't just left somewhere. He was buried, but he was gathered. His soul went to the Lord. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3, 10 through 13. And this is following on from the verse I read at the beginning, where Solomon is writing of his observations. So Ecclesiastes, middle of your Bible, just to the right. Ecclesiastes 3, 10. And if it's in an app, I'm sure you've got that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> too easy. Ecclesiastes 3.10. I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor it is the gift of God. So this life, all that you can do, whether it's necessary labor, uh, something for your health, recreation, enjoyment, it is a gift from God. And we are to enjoy that and celebrate the God who's given it to us. And even if you're deprived of the simple joy of eating or drinking, you can still partake of the living bread, Jesus, that's come down from heaven. You can you can eat of that bread, and you can also drink of the living water, the Holy Spirit that God gives to those who obey him. He loves us, and he's ordained us to do good, that we would rejoice in him all our days. And we don't need to faint as we grow older, as our skills or reflexes or quality of health begins to decline, because though our outward bodies perish, our inner man is being renewed day by day, it says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. I've heard people say that um, after a, a knee replacement or a, a new hip, they have a new lease on life because of the, new, the things that they are now able to do that they were unable because of the, the, the condition they suffered. The increased freedom is like, I've, I've got these new opportunities. These new avenues have opened up to me. For Christians, the concept of a new lease on life, it really doesn't apply because we've been purchased. And there's a big step between renting and owning, right? Except it's not us who own our bodies. It's Christ who owns us because he's purchased us with his own blood. And so he, he's like, you were kind of like this um, derelict house that was condemned. And Jesus is like, that's mine now. And I'm going to make that my place of rest. That's my habitation. And he takes up residence within us. So it's not like, 
We have a new lease on life, but we have a new life, and it's Jesus who lives within us, who changes us. And, you know, one person coming to the house makes a difference in the household. That new baby, big difference. That spouse makes a difference. Big difference in the house. Think of the difference Jesus makes when he comes into your life for, the, for good that we never thought was possible. That he's like, this is my home. This is my place of rest in you. Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, they united, they buried him in Machpelah alongside Sarah in the cave he bought from Ephron. And I liked Adam Clark's eulogy of Abraham. He said, from the free unmerited mercy of God proceeded all Abraham's excellences. But he was a worker together with God and therefore did, did not receive the grace of God in vain. Go, believe, love, obey, and persevere in like manner. So Abraham did provide so many good examples for us as someone who believed God, who trusted God, who, who obeyed him, and, and uh, yeah, not a perfect person, but who is? But he gives us a, an illustration of how we ought to live. So all those godly, admirable qualities that we see in Abraham, they were gifts received from God, and he chose to walk in them. The nations of the earth to this day have been blessed by the obedience of Abraham and may the nations be blessed by your obedience to Christ now. Jesus said in John 9, 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. So we have this opportunity in this season while we're on earth to do the work of God, to believe in Jesus, to obey and follow him in our, or, in our everyday lives. And I like that Abraham was blessed by God and then God blessed Isaac. It, it tells us specially, like, and the Lord blessed Isaac. God provided, God protected and guided him. And I don't believe this is a unique, unique blessing. Like, oh, Abraham, he was a really special guy, so he was blessed. Oh, Isaac, because he was the son of Abraham, he was blessed. You know, all who fear the Lord are blessed. People are, you're blessed when you don't even know the Lord. You just have no idea of how blessed you are. And as you grow older and mature in faith, you recognize like God is blessed and I am blessed because of him. And so there's a blessing God has for every Christian, not just Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Like that's available to you. That we could be a blessing to God because he is a blessing for us. Like only in Christ is the good life. You want the good life? It's in Christ. It's nowhere outside of him. Continuing in verse 12. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Ab Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, and Massa, Hadar, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names. By their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Hevelah, Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. When Abraham passed, Ishmael was about 89 years of age, 
and lived to be 137 years old. He was given that name by God. It means God hears. God had heard the, of the affliction of Hagar, his mother, and said, name your son Ishmael. God has heard you. So every time she would call his name, it's like remembering how God heard her in her affliction. And God answered the prayer of Abraham, made of Ishmael a great nation, blessed him with 12 sons, princes, and today the Arab world is comprised of 22 countries. Uh, Many descendants of Ishmael reside among them to this day. So God was faithful to answer that that, uh, promise he made to Abraham. Now the format, it's important to go over this, the format of the chapter, it concludes the life of Abraham, it concludes the life of Ishmael. What we're going to read now, they were still alive when it happened. So this is something you see in the book of Genesis, where there's almost like a baton passed from person to person, because um, Abraham was alive after Isaac and Rachel had Esau and Jacob. We know that Isaac was 60 years old when he was a dad, and Abraham was about 157. But it concludes the life of Abraham because it's like the baton has now been passed to Isaac, and we're going to follow that messianic line all the way through. And we see that with Cain and Seth, for instance. We see Cain talk about his, his, how he passed, his sons, but then that's the end of it, and then it continues on with Seth, and then we follow it to Abraham and all the way to Christ. So this focus now is shifted from Abraham to Isaac, and thus Abraham's testimony concludes early. And I got to say, I'm so impressed with biblical genealogies. I recently did an ancestry thing and putting together a bit of a family tree, but it is hard to find like verifiable information on people a hundred years old, much less thousands of years ago. It's phenomenal how God has accurately communicated and preserved his word. And from a time where people did not, a lot of people did not read or write. Only the professionals were the scribes. It took a lot of training, but uh, God's preserved his word. So whenever I read these genealogies, I'm just blown away like, wow. Like, I don't even know if my grandfather's name is, is spelled right. I can't prove it. I don't have a birth certificate. Genesis 25, 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. The narrative has shifted to the son of promise, Isaac, 40 years old when he married Rebekah who was brought from Paddan Aram to Beer Lahai Roy. That's where Isaac dwelt in the south. Like Sarah, who was barren for a lot of her life, so was Rebekah. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, God doesn't make things easy. We think he, he could, and so he should. He should just make things simple. And that if something's God's will, he'll pave the way for us, And make it just an easy process. Painless. Why not? 
But the testimony of Scripture shows us that what's impossible with God, impossible for man, is possible with God. And God allows obstacles that are immovable that bring us to a place of realizing that we can't do something ourselves and we need him. He does this so that we might look to him for wisdom and strength. And he reveals our need for him so our faith might grow in him. At the same time, God's able to use something that we see as bad and not according to our arbitrary timeline. I want to have kids by this age, and we're going to do this by then, and, and, and we have this plan. But God is the one with the plan, the real plan, the good plan. Desperation over Rebecca's barrenness, it moved Isaac to plead with God. He's begging God. He's seeking God. He's saying, please help her to fall pregnant. And the Lord granted his plea. I don't know that he prays that way. He seeks the Lord that way unless she is barren. But he prays. See, we know in a theoretical sense that we need God. But it's rarely so clear to us how much we need him. We don't don't get that because we can be self-sufficient in many ways. Like God's wisdom is seen in things that we take for granted every day, like the air we're breathing right now. It's a perfect mixture of gases for us. It's about 21% oxygen. 19.5% oxygen is considered oxygen deficient, and in that, uh, in a confined space with 19.5, you will slowly begin to suffocate and pass out. However, if you go to 22% oxygen, that's considered an oxygen-enriched atmosphere, which the air becomes ignitable and inflammable. So we are 1% one way or the other from suffocating to death or exploding. Crazy, right? We don't think about it. We don't realize how much we need God when we're affecting the atmosphere, right? The climate, and, and he manages it. And God intentionally stacks the deck so that people will see his handiwork and go, there's no way that that can just happen. That was designed. God did that. Jesus, he's traveling. People come to see him. His, di- his disciples are like, there's a lot of people. Jesus, send them away to buy food. Instead of sending them away, he says, you feed them. And they're like, Eight months' salary isn't enough to feed these people. And we don't have just eight months' salary lying around. Where would we even go? All they had available to them was five loaves and two fish. Now, there's a lad credited for that, but I believe it was God who caused that one lad to bring his fish along and his bread and then volunteered it, right? God's provision through a child. In a group of 5,000 men, not including women and children, that's about 50,000 loaves, too few, 20,000 fish, too few. And they said, what are they among so many? Like, how, how can this be? How can we, you're telling us to feed these people. How can we feed them when we only have five loaves and two fish? They didn't even think to ask Jesus to do something, did they? There's Jesus. They don't, they're just like, Wow. Too much for us. What can we do? They wanted Jesus to dismiss what they saw as an impossible problem that he commanded, you deal with it yourself. You feed them. 
And the only way they could do that is when they trusted Jesus and obeyed him. And he said, get the people to sit down in groups of 50. They did that. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them to distribute to all the people. And in his hands, it miraculously multiplied so that everyone was able to eat to the full and there were 12 baskets of fragments left over that they gathered up. He was doing more than just filling hungry bellies. He was demonstrating his power to give eternal life as the living bread sent from heaven to save sinners. They couldn't feed the people, but Jesus did. Rebecca couldn't fall pregnant, but God's able to bring life out of barrenness. And Jesus showed his divine power. He stacked the deck against himself when he said, I am going to die, but in three days I will rise again. That's pretty incredible. I mean, it was one thing when Elijah, when he was dueling with the prophets of Baal, had the altar set up and he's pouring water over it. He's soaking the wood. He's digging a trench around it to call down fire from heaven to ignite the sacrifice. It was obviously totally waterlogged and God did. But Jesus said, after I die, I will rise in three days. Impossible. Not just improbable, not unlikely. No, impossible. Cannot happen according to what we understand about the world. And when Jesus rose from the dead after his death, his burial and resurrection, the disciples did not believe he was alive because they believed he was dead. They didn't believe it was possible he could rise, even though he said so. And when Thomas saw Jesus resurrected, he exclaimed, my Lord and my God. Because the God who spoke light into darkness, who breathed life into Adam, he can conceive from a barren womb or in a virgin womb. He can do everything. God can raise the dead to life. He can forgive sins. He can change the way we think. He can save our souls from hell. He gives eternal life for all those who trust in him. Do you see how God does the impossible to show us how much we need him, that we can't do these things that he does, and that there's only hope in him? God answered Isaac's plea. Rebecca conceived after 20 years of marriage. Ah, the hard work's done. No. The hard work wasn't done. The pain of barrenness was now replaced with sleepless nights and bruised ribs from the inside. Anyone here had a bruised rib on the inside from kids kicking them? <laughs> At least one. It's usually a good sign. Oh, the baby's moving. Check that out. Whoa. Oh, I feel that. Well, this wasn't fun <laughs> because it was like there was WrestleMania going on in the uterus. This was a discomfort that she had never heard anyone going through. And I'm sure she talked to people and said, is this normal? And they're like, I've never had anything like that. People who had had pregnancy and had children, mm, not sure. We know she had a nurse who was with her. They were all at a loss. Verse 22 says, the children struggled within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She was asking for one child, but she had two. God had given her twins, twins that seemed averse to each other. It's like they hated each other. This word, they struggled within here, that means to dash against or to bruise. It's like just whack. There's just 
bruising each other. She struggled. Her prayer was to have a child, but not, it wasn't answered in this rosy, romantic way that she had hoped, where she said, oh, to have a child. But this was not in her plan, right? She wisely seeks the Lord who answered their prayer for children. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. I've heard of identical twins. These were like opposite twins. They were like totally different from each other in their appearance, in their manner. And the question she asks is such a good one for us to consider. If all is well, why am I like this? She's wondering, why is this happening to me? What is going on? Have you ever wondered something like this? Why is this happening to me? Her expectation of a a normal pregnancy had been dashed. Everything did not seem well, but she did not pretend that everything is fine. She wasn't just going to tough it out. Like, I'm tough, I'm strong, I'm going to get through this. She sought the Lord because she was not fine. And God's like, I'm going to make those children within you two nations. The older will serve the younger. Now, knowing why something is happening, it can ease our minds a little bit, but it doesn't magically fix the problem. It doesn't mean the children just suddenly, after this revelation, quit struggling inside of her. No, they kept on struggling. But she knew that God knew what she was going through and that he had a plan and a purpose that would unfold. So knowing the Lord knows our struggles and he's working toward good purposes, I would think in those days they'd be very concerned that the child would survive childbirth. But God promised her, I'm going to make two nations of these children. And so there was that confidence, like, God is going to get me through this. I'm not going to be carrying these babies forever. And God is going to be with them and cause them to grow into nations. Sometimes those feelings, that debilitating pain, that hopeless struggle can be the very thing that directs us to God. David asked himself, he had these distressing feelings that led to this introspective search, and he said in Psalm 42, 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So in light of God and his goodness and his mercy shown him, David had hope. And he's like, in light of how good God is and how he's blessed me, how, why am I so depressed? Why am I cast down and feeling hopeless when I have a hope? And so God's helping him to remember that, who God is, and to change the way he's thinking, and that his countenance, his outlook, the expression on his face could change into a smile because of God who was with him, God who was helping him, a real hope. David's hope was not his circumstances changing. It wasn't that, okay, I'll be fine when this pregnancy is over. No, it's, it's trusting that God is with you right now in the middle of that struggle when there's nothing you can do about it, knowing that he is in charge. So Rebecca's hope was not that the struggle would end, but God who caused her to conceive what she would carry her son's She would give birth in due time. So good for us to seek seek the Lord for guidance, for hope, and help, rather than 
pretending that our struggles don't exist. Verse 24, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, so the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I love how it says, her days were fulfilled to give birth. It shows just the sovereign hand of God who, who helped her all that time. Like when, when God knew that uh, Isaac's going to become a dad when he's 60. He had maybe hoped to become a dad when he was 40, 45. But when he was 60, that was the time. And she had carried those twins, and when it was time, God caused her to give birth. So the hour, the day, it was known to God. And it was confirmed. She was carrying twins. That was that alien thing that seemed to be struggling within her. It was the two boys, like God said. Unlike Ishmael and Isaac, that God named, we see here that Isaac and Rebekah named their sons, and they were descriptive names based upon their appearance or what they did at childbirth. So the first comes out red like a hairy coat. It's like a woolen garment. That would be interesting. The name Esau means hairy. Edom was connected to his name, which means red. So he came out with red hair and very hairy. Um, and it said upon his exit, his brother, still continuing the struggle, he reaches out and grabs a hold of his heel. And so the name Jacob, it means supplanter. That means one who takes the place of another by force, schemes, or deception. And God had said, one will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And, and I don't necessarily think that the younger was the stronger. It wasn't because Jacob was stronger that Esau served him, but because in his weakness he served a great God, the strong God. Esau, he grew to be a skillful hunter and outdoorsman. He keenly developed the skill of tracking, silently stalking, and killing prey. He was out in the field so much that his clothes smelled like it. Like you have flowers and grasses and all those beautiful aromas that are in a field. But also there's carrion and uh, cow patties and the strong smell, probably in his case, of unwashed man. Not adding to the fragrance of the field at all. And Jacob, he's a stark contrast, right? He's a mild man. He's quiet. He, he prefers domestic duties among the tents. Some might call him a mama's boy or a homebody. He has this really domestic lifestyle. Esau's out in the field, and who knows when he's going to be back. He'll, he'll bring back the barbecue, though. So he's out in the field, and he's hunting. Who knows where he is, but Jacob, he's always close to the tent. You know, while his brother is hunting deer, he's soaking lentils and chopping vegetables and peeling them, right? Very different personality. Now, we're given some insight into the family dynamics here as well, because verse 28 says, And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We see that there's some preferential treatment happening in the household. Isaac loved to eat the brisket and the ribs and the 
steak that Esau brought home. There was something they bonded over with like, yeah, you got it. Awesome. When are we, when are we eating? And uh, talking about seasoning and bragging about the, the game he's brought home. And they just bonded over that. But with Jacob, Rebecca loving him, we're not really told why. There's no reason. He's a man who dwelt in tents. He was always around. Maybe she realized that her husband kind of gravitated toward Esau and was singing his praises. And so she, her heart was moved to, to really nurture and, and come alongside Jacob and to, to meet what was lacking. Now, this partiality, it was not good. But the Bible tells us like it is. It doesn't just give us the sanitary view of like, oh, everything was great. And the family dynamics were wonderful. And everyone got along so well. No, there was preferential treatment that would lead to sin. God knows the hearts and God shows no partiality. He doesn't prefer one over the other. Now, the wisdom of this world is to extend honor to whom we wish to receive favor. It singles out those we can benefit from. Like Esau, he's like, I prefer, and he may not actually say this, but God knew that he had a preference for Esau because he ate of his game. We can love for all sorts of reasons. We can love to feel wanted, needed, important. We can choose to love what's valuable or because of how something makes us feel valuable or needed. Uh, our love is tied to what we receive or what we can give to others. There's all the, it's very complicated. It's very complex. And we don't often even know what's going on when we're preferring one over another. But could you please turn in your Bibles to James 3, verse 13. God's wisdom is in contrast to man's wisdom or the earthly wisdom. And we look at Esau and Jacob and how different they were, but it's even a bigger difference between the world's wisdom that chooses preference based upon self and God's wisdom. Huge difference, not even comparable. James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Esau and Jacob, they had this sibling rivalry going on. They struggled to overcome and outdo each other. One's praised and the other's envious. And it was unwise for Isaac and Rebekah to show partiality. The wisdom of God, though, it's contrary to that. It doesn't play favorites. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. That's what God's wisdom looks like. And it's important to realize we naturally do not and cannot walk in the meekness of God's wisdom by trying. Even if we're aware of it, we can't do that. Because we have preferences, we have favorites, we have selfish motives. If you have at any time felt the burn of envy, or you're irresistibly drawn towards self-seeking or self-promotion, it shows that we show partiality. We pick up on it. 
And we all have preference. We prefer someone to do a task for us, or we prefer to do it ourselves without assistance. We don't want to submit to someone else's way of doing things. And we could be partial to something like tent camping or staying in a hotel. And I want to say it's not a sin to have a personal preference. But partiality arising out of envy or selfishness always is. That is always sinful. If your partiality is due to envy or selfishness. We show partiality when our personal interests are allowed to influence us. And we can be harsh when we should be gentle and merciful. And under the guise of fair play, we can play favorites. The weakness of meekness of wisdom is shown by good conduct to all, not just to the few that we favor or that we know. Someone that has our back type thing. No. This meekness of wisdom It's all those things, pure, peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, willing to yield. And Jesus has given us an example of what that looks like. So, partiality born out of envy and selfishness is earthly, sensual, demonic, even if the world justifies it as being sensible, reasonable, and beneficial. This requires faith, right, to accept this, what God has said. So, when we see in us this partiality that prefers one or another based upon envy or selfishness, Let's confess it as sin. Let's put it far from our lives, choosing instead to walk in the meekness of wisdom, preferring to submit to God's ways rather than going our own way. When we have that inner turmoil that's happening, like Esau and Jacob struggling with inside of Rebekah, let's seek the Lord. Why am I conflicted? Why am I upset about this? Why am I so angry that I feel belittled or overlooked when that selfishness rises up, that envy? Barrenness, pregnancy, and having twins, they were all seasons with unique struggles. It wasn't like the struggle ended like, whew, that barrenness was rough. So happy to be pregnant. It wasn't happy. It was hard. And then, oh, I'm so glad not to have those children wrestling around inside. But now they're outside. Hey, Esau, knock that off, right? You have twins now. You never had a kid. Now you've got two. That's hard. That's really difficult. But you know, God was there. God is wise. God helped. When when we seek him, he gives us the answers we need. And the, the meekness of wisdom, it finds contentment and rest in God whether we're undertaking a new task, we're in the middle of a tough process, or a season is coming to an end. So let's embrace the journey with Jesus and not be troubled walking wisely with him because he won't leave or forsake us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your wisdom, the meekness of wisdom. That is, it is in meekness that your wisdom is shown in your humility in walking this earth in being patient with disciples, in correcting misunderstandings, in being a hearing ear and a helping hand. Lord, we thank you for Rebecca and Isaac and the things that they endured, that season of barrenness, that season of struggle, and that there's contentment to be found in you, you who know our days. Thank you that you are over all, you are in all, 
and that you use these difficult struggles and situations of life to open our eyes to see our need to you. And Lord, I pray that you would show us when we're having one of these inner struggles, when we're having this turmoil within us, that we wouldn't just act like it's okay or push through without seeking you, but we would seek the Lord and accept and walk in your answer according to the wisdom of your word. Lord, I thank you that you are with us, that you, you help us every step. And I pray during these, these difficult seasons, Lord, that we would draw near to you and we would never stray from you. We would never abandon you because you have sought us out. You have called us. Just thank you again for these examples and for the, the help and the hope that you've given us. Let us hope in you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.